And thank you, Daniel, for reading that long psalm. That was a blessing. Um, you know, we read these in their entirety, and we, we preach these in their entirety because these are composed as, as a poem or a song sometimes. And so these are a single literary uh, unit and idea. And so we want to understand uh, each and every one of these psalms in their context and glean what we can from them. You know, sometimes when people get saved, they tend to think of spiritual growth like this. So they're new to the faith, they get saved, and they think about spiritual growth like this. If you had a graph, and you were looking at the graph, and down here they get saved, they they think of spiritual growth as if from the graph, it's just moving upward consistently in a straight line. And it's this kind of consistent pattern of growth. Hey, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm brand new. I've been saved by God, and now I'm just going to take off like a rocket and just always move forward in growth. And so the sins that I once struggled with, I'm never going to struggle with again. I'm a Christian now. I'm new. Doubts that you've overcome, well, those are never going to creep back in. That's a thing of my past. Fear and anxiety, those no longer have a hold over me. False identities, those aren't going to grab a hold of me. I'm in Christ now. They think that God's word will just be a consistent delight and that it will be easy to obey. Now, some of you are smiling as I'm saying all of this because you've been walking with the Lord long enough to know that's not how spiritual growth works. If we go back to the graph and you think about it, instead of being, okay, I'm saved here and now I just go in this straight line, the reality of the Christian life is that you begin to go up for sure, you drop down, and it, it looks more like a jagged line goes up and down. It kind of looks like Bitcoin through the years. High highs, low lows, and everything in between. But it is true that if you were to zoom out from a macro perspective and you'd look at a believer's life throughout decades maybe and throughout the long haul, even though it's ups and downs and everything in between, there is a trajectory of growth that from where you began and where you end are fundamentally different places, but it is not smooth sailing. And we are constantly finding ourselves as Christians taking two steps forward only to take one step back. And we're reminded of this truth through Psalm chapter 31. Psalm 31 is interesting because as Derek Kidner, the Old Testament commentator, notes, it makes the journey twice over from anguish to assurance. First in verses 1 through 8 and then again in verses 9 through 24. What Derek Kidner is pointing out is that it's almost like there's two loops in Psalm 31. He goes from anguish, he says, to a place of assurance in verses 1 through 8. That's the the journey that he goes on in prayer before the Lord. But then from verse 9, it's like he just starts back over again, and he has to take the same journey, and it's a lot longer the second time through. It's verses 9 through 24. In both of these sections, you're going to have cries for divine aid, followed by expressions of trust in the Lord, followed by an assurance that God's going to deliver David. So like a boomerang, it goes out and it runs its course only to come back to the start at verse 9. At verse nine. And that feels a little bit weird. As you read this psalm, it feels like we would see David... Go from this place of anguish, crying out to the Lord for deliverance and for help, express his trust in the Lord, and then he'd be in this place that he's assured that God has delivered him, and then that's the end of it. But that's not how the psalm works. His anxiety ramps back up, and he's calling out for help again. 
But again, that's what life is like. That's what the Christian life is like. We're in this place where we take these steps forward and sometimes we have to take steps back. You get bad news from the doctor. You go home and you cry. Then you pray. Then you remind yourself of God's promises and then you feel better. And then all of a sudden you get hit with another wave of anxiety and grief over what the doctor told you. And you go through that process again and again. And so one of the lessons in Psalm 31 is the reminder that we never arrive in our spiritual lives. We are constantly growing. We are working out the salvation that God has worked in us for the rest of our lives. So that our lives are marked by highs and lows and victories and defeats. And that's just what it looks like until Christ receives us in glory and we're made new completely and fully. And the most important thing of all throughout our spiritual lives is that we keep coming back to the Lord in faith. And that has been one of the consistent lessons that we've been learning through the Psalter is that we have to come back to a place of faith. That's what defines the spiritual person, the righteous person, the godly person. And once again, that's what we find David doing right up front in Psalm 31. So we begin in the first two verses with this cry for divine aid. It's the first time. It's going to happen again. But he cries out for divine aid. He needs God's help. Look at verse 1 again. David writes this in Psalm 31.1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So David here begins with the most important thing, which is, again, expressing his trust, his confidence, his faith in the Lord and asking his God to deliver him from an hour of trial. And for all of David's shortcomings, which if you know the life of David, there are many, one thing that David seems to always get right is that he constantly runs to the Lord over and over and over in his life. Every new challenge that David faces is an opportunity to go back to his God and seek his refuge and his rescue there. Now, what does David need deliverance from? He's asking for it right there in verse 1. Well, as Daniel read this psalm, it should have been evident that there are adversaries or there are foes or enemies that are present and lurking here in Psalm 31. But can we be more specific? Maybe in verse 21, David talks about being in a besieged city. So a city that is under siege from enemies. And that could possibly be the context here, that David is in a city besieged by his enemies. Now notice that the basis for David's request for deliverance is not based on his own character, but on the character of God. In verse 1, he says, In your righteousness deliver me. Not in my righteousness, deliver me. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now we have to remind ourselves that God had pledged his love and his blessing and his protection on his people. This is what the covenant means in the Old Testament, that when people put their faith in the Lord and committed themselves to the Lord, they could expect that God was fully committed to them. 
that the Lord was going to bless them and cause his favor to shine on them and that God would protect them and deliver them from times of difficulty. And so David is saying, God, this is who you promised to be. You promised to be a deliverer to people like me who take refuge in me. And so in your righteousness and based on your character and your promises, do the right thing, Lord. Fulfill your obligations. Deliver on your promises. And family, this is such a great way to pray prayers to the Lord. To come to the Lord and to pray to him according to promises that he's made to us. We come to the Lord and we say to the Lord, God, you promise me that you'll never leave me and forsake me, so be with me now. We can come to the Lord and say, God, you promise me that if I confess my sins and forsake them, that you will be faithful and just to forgive me of them. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. God, you promise that you'll keep me in perfect peace as my mind is stayed on you when I'm trusting in you. Would you give me your peace now? God, you promise to supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Would you please provide for me and my family now? We're praying God's promises right back to him. And God in his righteousness delivers on his promises. It's sort of like when my kids come to me and they ask me for something. Like, Dad, can we stay up late tonight? And my knee-jerk response is, no, go to bed. And then one of them says, but Dad, you said that we could. I'm like, dang it, I did say that. I'm bound by my own oath, right? I have to do it now because my kids are reminding me of a promise that I had made to them. And this is such an effective way for us to pray. So in these first two verses, David is coming to the Lord and he is crying out for God's deliverance according to God's promises. But verses three through six move us into this expression of trust now where David is going to demonstrate that he is fully looking to the Lord as his deliverer. Look at verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. So in verse 3, David calls the Lord his rock and also his fortress. And then in verse 4, he says, you are my refuge. In other words, David is looking to God as his fortress, as this place where he can go and he can expect to be protected. He wants to be protected from these enemies. These are enemies, according to verse 4, who are setting traps for him. He says, you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. Notice in verse 6 that David directly says that he trusts in the Lord. But verse 5 is the strongest expression of his trust. In verse 5, David says this, Into your hand I commit my spirit. That is such a strong expression of his trust. He's saying, my whole life, everything that I am, I'm entrusting into your hands, Lord. God, it's into your hands that I'm committing my spirit. Now notice when David here is faced with the prospect of death, He's not concerned about his job title. He's not concerned about his accomplishments. He's not concerned about his wealth. Into your hands I commit my IRA. That's not where he's at here. When it's all said and done and he's faced with death, he's concerned about the most important thing, his spirit. 
His soul, he's saying, Lord, when it comes down to it, this is the last thing that I have. This is something I'm relinquishing to your control and entrusting to your control. And death really does have a way of bringing into focus what matters most in life. Tragically, most people, and and I'm just as guilty as the next person, we invest more of our time and energy into these things that when it's all said and done are going to be stripped away and Really, it's about our soul, it's about our spirit, it's about who we are before God that matters most. And death has a way of bringing all of that into focus. And so David is saying, God, I'm entrusting my spirit to you. I'm committing it into your hands. And that, of course, is the wisest thing to do. Have you committed your spirit into God's hands? He's the only one who can keep you safe even in death. Now, for those of us who have read the Gospels, verse 5 should ring a few bells, right? That expression, into your hands I commit my spirit, is language that Jesus himself borrowed as he breathed his last from the cross. Jesus is hanging there and he's about to die and Jesus borrows Psalm 31 verse 5 and he says to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like David, Jesus was expressing total confidence in the Father. Even when his enemies seemed like they had gained the upper hand, even when it looked from an earthly perspective like all hope was lost, Jesus was saying, God, into your hand I commit my spirit. And that's because Jesus knew what David knew. That God would never fail him. Never. And God didn't fail him. Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of his father. And even though he died and he was buried, three days later he was raised back to life. And the father delivered him. And for every person who says, into your hand I commit my spirit, they will also be able to say the second part of verse 5. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. No exceptions. God will redeem his people because he is a faithful God. So again, I ask you, have you committed your spirit into his care? If you have, you can trust that he will be faithful and he will redeem you. Now in verse 6, David writes, Therefore let everyone who is godly... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 32. Let me go back to our chapter. Verse 6, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, we need to notice again the contrast here between David, who is the godly one, and his enemies. He says here in verse 6 that they trust in that which is not God's, worthless idols. Whereas David says, I trust in the Lord, the one true God. And this reminds us that the ultimate faith question, the deepest faith question, the ultimate faith question is this. In whom do you trust? It's not, how do you behave? It's not, how do you feel? It's not, what have you done for God? It is, in whom do you trust? That's the question that matters the most. And so many people get this mixed up. 
And they think that their faith is ultimately defined by their behavior, how moral they are, or what they've done for God. And they look at their life and they say, I know I'm okay with God. I know I'm among the godly because I've been to church my whole life. And I went on a missions trip when I was 19. And I did this. And we give 10% of our tithes to the church. And they look at all these different things and they say, that's how I know that I'm okay with God. It's not about that. Fundamentally. Fundamentally, it's about in whom do you trust. And that's the division that we see over and over again in the Psalms and throughout the Bible. They are trusting in, they're putting their hope in, they're looking to, David says, worthless idols. You could fill that in with anything in the universe that's not named Jesus. It could be money, it could be family, it could be a whole range of things that you're putting your hope in. And if you're doing that, then you are among the ungodly, and the unrighteous. Or if you're putting your trust and your hope and your faith in Christ and Christ alone, you are among the godly no matter what else is going on in your life. Well, this brings us to verses 7 and 8 where David now moves in this psalm to a place of assurance where he's confident that because he trusts in the Lord and God has promised to deliver his people, well, God will do it. Look at verse 7 again. I will rejoice, he says, and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. He went from low in verses 1 and 2 to this high in verses 7 and 8. Now he shifts to joy. He says, I will rejoice and I will be glad. Why? Because God is delivering him. He's experienced God's steadfast love. God's not handing him over to his enemies. David knows this. Instead, he says that God would set his feet on a broad place. This is language we've seen all over the Psalter. And basically it means that God's going to put him on sure ground. He's going to have secure footing underneath his feet. Rather than being rocked by his enemies, he's going to stand strong and steadfast because God will ensure it. And what this means for David is that God has seen his affliction and known the distress of his soul. Aren't you glad that God sees your affliction? That God right now understands the things that are distressing you. That God's not oblivious to it. That even though experientially in Psalm 31, David is deeply distressed. And he's concerned, how's this going to work out? He knows that ultimately God sees what's going on. God understands. And right now, God knows what's keeping you up at night. Right now, God knows what you've been shedding tears over. And he's moving close to deliver you. And it's only a matter of time. And that's why we're called in this psalm to wait. So this is beautiful. David goes from crying out for deliverance to expressing his trust in the Lord to now knowing and being assured that God will not forsake him. That'd be a great place to end Psalm 31. It's all done. David's in the right place now. David's a perfect example of godliness for us. We should all be able to just look now and go, there we go. That's kind of a nice, neat, compartmentalized faith. Everything's clean. Everything gets tied up with a beautiful bow on top of it. Go and do likewise. 
That's not what happens. Verse 9 comes and it hits us rather abruptly. All of a sudden, after this place of rejoicing and being assured, David shifts gears and says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. So now we shift into round two. And it's sort of a 2.0 version of round one. You know how when you have the 2.0, the upgrade, it kind of ratchets everything up. If you look at verses 9 through 24 now, it's like 1 through 8, but it's more intense. Everything's ratcheted up a little bit. This is deep, deep distress that he describes now. He says, my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails, my bones waste away. So this new cry for divine aid is even more intense than the first one. David here is describing spiritual and physical and emotional, and in a moment we'll see even relational exhaustion. And where is this coming from? Why is everything hurting so bad in his life? Where is this coming from? Interestingly, to some extent, it's because of his sin. We see that in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of what? He says, because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So on one hand, David could acknowledge that He's experiencing adversity and hardship and difficulty because of sin in his own life. That he is not freed from any hardship because he himself has been sinful in his life. He's not, he's not perfect. And so, as he says, his life is spent in sorrow and his years with sighing. And that's just par for the course living in a fallen world. Living in a world where Sin abounds, and even our own sin contributes to the brokenness of the world. And so David knows that he's not going to be free from difficulty because of his own sin. But what's interesting is that in this particular instant, David sees himself as righteous in his cause. We get that from verse 18. In verse 18, he talks about God shutting the mouths of these enemies of his who are speaking against the righteous. So David sees himself as righteous in this instant. And so the major factor then in David's suffering in Psalm 31 is not his sin. That'll be the major factor in Psalm 32 next week. But the major factor is what we find in verses 11 through 13. It's these enemies who have turned against him. Look at how he describes it in verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. David had become the talk of the town, but in a bad way. Everybody was scheming against him. People were whispering in the halls around him. Perhaps his close associates are frustrated that their leader has brought them into this place. That their leader, their king, has allowed them to get to a place where they are sieged and where it looks like the enemies are going to get the upper hand. So David realizes that to these people, to his friends, to his neighbors, he looks useless now. He's like a broken vessel. 
what need do we have for this guy anymore? He can't lead us successfully. And so they even begin to plot to take his life and remove him from his position. But David has not lost all hope. After describing the situation again in these verses, we see him pivot again. And he comes right back in verses 14 and 15 to this expression of trust in the Lord. It's right in the middle of his cry for divine aid. He says this at verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This is huge. I love this. Despite the fact that even David's closest friends and neighbors had turned their backs on him, David continued to look to the Lord. Now there is something about difficulty and hardship and persecution. And especially about when people that are close to you turn against you. There's something about that that leads a lot of people to walk away from the Lord. They look at the trials and the hardships and the difficulties in their life and they go, you know what? If everyone else has turned against me, then God must have turned against me too. And they walk away from the Lord. David reasons differently. David says, if everybody else walks away from me, at least God won't. Even if my family rejects me, even if the people who pledged loyalty loyalty to me, even if the people who say they love me abandon me, at least my God will never do that to me. And so David's able to look at the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges in his life, not as an invitation to run away from God and abandon his faith, but as an invitation to draw nearer to God and to find deeper levels of intimacy and rescue in the presence of his God. And family, we have to be able to see challenges and suffering and obstacles in the Christian life as an invitation to renew our trust in the Lord. God is wanting to give us more cause and more necessity to come to him and him alone in our lives. And David responds this way. If everyone else abandons me, at least God won't. He says, my times are in your hand. That's the same idea as verse 5 where he said, into your hand I commit my spirit. It's a surrendering oneself to the sovereignty and control of God. My times are in your hand, Lord. He's saying, God, you have complete control over every aspect of my life. Our lives are not left up to fate or to chance. Everything that happens in our lives is ultimately under the control of a sovereign God. God is over everything, and that's the only hope that we have, that God can take even the bad things in our lives and work those toward good ends. Now, some people struggle with this idea that God is in control of even the bad things that happen to us. But guys, what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is a God who is too weak to handle the hardships in our life, that maybe there's another power in the universe that's as strong as God or more strong than God that can work evil against God. That's a terrifying reality. And it's certainly not a biblical one. The Bible teaches us that there is no rival power to God in the universe. 
that our times are in his hands. And that's, again, the only reason why as Christians we can have confidence that all of the evil and all of the bad and all of the suffering and all of the hardship is ultimately going to be directed toward good purposes and good ultimate ends because God's in control of all of it. As children, we're taught to sing that he's got the whole world in his hands. And I think as adults, we need to be reminded that he has our whole world in his hands. That your entire life, God has it in his hands. And David can say this and believe this, and it leads him to comfort. That even those enemies are on every side, that's okay, God's got me. God will see me through. And so he cries out to God for, for aid. He says, rescue me from the hand of my enemies. Now this is the second time that we've seen this contrast between God's hands and the hands of David's enemies. Right? If you go back to verse 5, David said, I commit myself into God's hands. And that's why he was confident in verse 8 that he would not be delivered into their hands. Now we see it again. He's saying here, I'm in your hands, so rescue me from their hands. And I love this because it just reminds us that if you are in God's hands, you can't simultaneously be in the enemy's hands. So if we entrust ourselves into God's hands, we're safe, we're secure. Nobody can pull us out of his hands. And so in verse 16, David says to the Lord, Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is a beautiful prayer because it's flowing out of his experience. So much of the Bible is written from somebody's personal experience. It's not just abstract theology that David learned in seminary and says, okay, let me pin some really theologically rich ideas here. No, think about it. In verse 11, even his neighbors hide their face from David. So David says, Lord, they're hiding their face from me. Would you cause your face to shine on me? I'm lacking their relational presence. Can I have yours? Remember, God's face in the Bible speaks of God's favor and God's protection. And so David says that he wants God's face to shine on him. Now, as God delivers David, David will not be ashamed. His enemies will. So David's praying this. He's asking for the Lord's deliverance. He's expressed his trust in the Lord again for a second time. And so finally, this leads us to assurance of deliverance. David's working himself all the way around this loop now for the second time, and now he's back to a place where he knows that God will deliver him. Look at verse 19. He says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. David's like coming up for air here in verse 19. He's reassured now of God's faithfulness and of his own deliverance. And he's reminded here of God's abundant goodness. Not just God's goodness, abundant goodness. 
David could speak of God's goodness as if it just overflows. There's no limit to how much goodness that God bestows on him and on all of God's people. Notice that this isn't God's dealings with everyone. God's abundant goodness is just not showered on everyone universally. He says it's reserved for those who fear you and who take refuge in you in verse 19. Those are two very important expressions. God's abundant goodness is reserved for those who fear him and those who take refuge in him. Now, those who fear God, those are those who acknowledge God for who he is. They see God as the creator and the sustainer of everything. They see God as the one that we are all accountable to. When you come to understand God for who he truly is, the response is that you have a proper fear and reverence toward God. You don't dismiss God. You don't treat him flippantly. You fear him. Those who take refuge in God are those who respond appropriately to who he is. So again, those who fear him acknowledge him for who he is. Those who take refuge in him respond appropriately to who he is. They know who God is. They've understood that, that he is the creator, that he's the sustainer, that he's our only hope for deliverance, and they respond appropriately by putting their trust in him, by saying, you will be my God. I will take refuge in you. And if that's what defines you, then God's abundant goodness is for you. If you fear the Lord, if you look to the Lord as your refuge. I love how the, abundance, the abundant goodness of God is spoken of in two senses in this verse. On one hand, David's able to write that God's abundant goodness is stored up for the righteous. Stored up. That speaks of an abundant goodness that is still in the future. God's storing up goodness for you right now as I speak. But he also speaks of an abundant goodness that is visible in the sight of the children of mankind. It's visible right now. People can see God's abundant goodness being poured out on the lives of the faithful now. David knows that his enemies are going to see it because God will deliver him from this siege. They're going to witness it. But God's goodness is evident in all of our lives right now if we're in Christ. People are able to see it in the fruit of the Spirit, for example. As we begin to live and embody the life of Christ, and instead of being ruled by anger and violence, we're ruled by peace and kindness. And instead of being ruled by our feelings and our desires, we are ruled by self-control. We're marked by love rather than hatred. All of those things are a demonstration of God's goodness right now in our lives. But family, we've always got to remember that whatever goodness we've experienced right now from the hand of God will pale in comparison to the goodness that we will experience that's being stored up for us right now when you and I enter into glory. And David's alluding to this. That yes, we receive God's goodness now in a million ways. But that is going to pale in comparison to the things that our eyes cannot see right now. To the things that God has prepared for us in heaven. In the new heavens and the new earth. Where you and I are going to live with unending joy. Where you and I are going to have every single tear, every sadness, every sorrow wiped away forever. 
where you and I are going to be in the presence of the Lord, where there's fullness of joy, where you and I are going to be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us in the Lord, where you and I are going to live in a state where only righteousness exists. There's zero conflict. There's zero strife. There's no relational tension. Everything's harmonious. That's what eternity will be for those of us who have put our trust in Christ. And we get glimpses of all of that here and now, but we're going to see it and experience it in its fullness. And David is saying, God's goodness toward his people is abundant. It's overflowing. You're never going to understand it until you get there and you experience it. And it's going to blow our minds. So David in verse 21 has to praise the Lord. He's thankful. He blesses the Lord. In verse 22 He does note, though, how he felt during this crisis. When David was in trouble, he felt that God was not with him. Look at what he says there in verse 22. He says, I had, past tense, said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. David had felt like God was not with him. He had those moments where he just, he's looking at his circumstances and he's concluding, God's not with me. But God obviously was because he said, you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. And there's such an important reminder for us here that our feelings can be deceptive. David felt this. God's cut me off. That's why this is all happening. That's what he was wrestling with in the presence of the Lord and in prayer. But our feelings can be deceptive. Pastor Tim Keller writes, we must live then on the basis of what God has revealed, not how we feel. And so many Christians today struggle with this. They're basing the way that they live on how they feel. And if I don't feel a particular thing, then that can't be true. Or if I do feel a particular thing, that then must be true. Our feelings are deceptive. They're not a reliable guide. The only reliable guide that we have is God's word. And throughout Psalm 31, every time David anchored his thinking in the character and the promises of God, he was assured. He was confident. But here when he allowed his feelings to get the upper hand, he was despairing and he was low. One commentator used the helpful analogy of a pilot who's flying in a low visibility situation. If you're flying and you have no visibility, what do you have to do as a pilot? Well, You have to rely on your instruments. You've got to look at your instruments. Even if you can't see through the fog and through the storm, you look at the instruments and you've got to trust those instruments despite what you might feel. You might feel like you're going in a heading this direction, but the instruments are saying, no, you're going in this direction and you've just got to trust that. You might feel like your altitude is 1,000 feet, but the instruments are saying it's 4,000 feet. You just have to trust that. Because that's the only reliable guide you have in that moment of fear and clouds and darkness. And so it is for the Christian. When life is cloudy, when you're in the storms, when you can't see, the only way to get your bearings is to base what you believe and how you're going to operate on what God has revealed in his word. Our feelings are deceptive and many Christians get taken out and sway away from the faith because they're basing their life on feeling and not on the word of God. We have to base it on this. And so David now comes to the end of this prayer. And in these final two verses, 
He's going to turn to the rest of the faith community, and he's going to do two things. Number one, he's going to call on everyone else to be loyal to the Lord. David knows that's the only hope he has, and so he wants every other believer to do the same. And number two, he's going to encourage their faith. Here's what he writes in verse 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, he writes. All you who wait for the Lord. In verse 23, this idea of loving God seems to come out of nowhere. David has not mentioned loving God in the previous 22 verses, and now all of a sudden his charge to the church or to the congregation of the faithful is, love the Lord. And it feels like it just kind of comes out of nowhere. But this is what God's deliverance always leads to. God's deliverance leads to loving the Lord. God's power in judgment would lead people to fear him. But God's power in deliverance leads people to love him. David was rescued from his enemies. And his heart was soft to the Lord. He loved the Lord because the Lord was his God and the one who would deliver him. And this is the way that it works for all of us. The Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us. How do we know he loved us? Well, the Bible tells us that we know that God loved us because he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be delivered from our sins and we could have relationship with our father in heaven. So God's deliverance of us from our sins is what causes us to love God and to respond in love to him. So David here in this psalm is looking at God delivering him, and he's saying to the community of the faithful, he's saying, guys, love the Lord. God is a delivering God. He's delivering me, and he delivers all of his people. Therefore, love him. He says that the Lord preserves the faithful. I love that language. You and I cannot preserve ourselves. You and I cannot keep ourselves for the rest of our lives, but Jesus does. The Lord preserves us. He holds on to us even when we're tempted to let go of him. So this is the abundant goodness that the Lord lavishes on his people. And therefore, we should respond in love, especially in light of what the Lord repays to those who choose not to trust in him. Look at that contrast in verse 23. Abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Same word. His abundant goodness is toward the faithful, but he abundantly repays those who act in pride. Now we often think of pride as just arrogance and conceit, and that's certainly pride. But when the Bible's talking about pride in the wisdom literature here, generally what he's speaking of is the person who does not acknowledge God for who he is. It's the person who says, I can take care of this myself. I don't need God. I've got this under control. It's just another description of the ungodly. People who are not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in something else. And David's saying, listen, as abundant as God's goodness is toward the faithful, which I've been talking about for five minutes, he says that same degree of abundance is what God's going to repay those who reject him. Those who think that they can make it on their own. Those who dismiss God and disregard God and want nothing to do with God, 
God says they will be abundantly repaid at the end of time. That's a terrifying thought. But that's the reality. This is what the Bible teaches. That the only hope that we have of eternal joy and goodness is going to come to us from being in God's presence. And if people opt to run away from God's presence and they want nothing to do with God's presence right now, then guess what? That's exactly what they're going to get. They're going to spend an eternity cut off from the goodness of God. And what that's going to feel like experientially is an abundance of repayment for that decision. But of course, it doesn't have to be that way. And so the Bible over and over and over again tells us of God's love and God's patience. God's demonstrating his love to us even now. The fact that we've all gathered here this morning and through song and through prayers and through the scriptures, we're being told God loves you. God sent Christ for you. He died for your sins. You can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with him. This is God's love on display for us. And he's giving all of us ample opportunity to say, Lord, I trust in you. I want you. I turn to you. So David ends and he says, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Those are our marching orders this week. These are the marching orders every week, right? Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. All of us are still waiting for the Lord in one way or another. Some of you are here this morning and you are waiting for your faith to finally click. You keep coming, you keep praying. You're just saying, God, is is this ever going to click for me? Some of you are waiting this morning for healing. Some of you are waiting this morning for a wayward child. Lord, we've been praying and praying and praying. When are you going to act? Others are waiting for the salvation of your parents. Or your spouse. Some you're waiting for God to heal your marriage. Some are waiting for God to provide during this season. Family, be strong. Let your heart take courage this morning. As the children of God, we don't have to live in the fear of the unknown. As the children of God, we get to every single day live by faith in the character and the promises of God. And the scriptures tell us that those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. So be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. Let's pray together.